Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Uh, we're in a generosity series here at Hope, um, and this morning uh, we're preaching, we're looking at one of my favorite passages, um, perhaps my favorite passage in all of Scripture, really. Uh, it has all of the elements of a great story. Uh, there's a self-righteous bully who gets humbled and put in his place. Uh, the underdog takes a risk, and she gets rewarded. Uh, she gets the hero's attention, and he... Uh, honors her and elevates her in front of everybody who was looking down on her. Um, it's, just, it's a great story. And uh, the other thing I really love about it is it really, this passage captures the heart of the gospel uh, and the journey of the Christian life uh, all in 14 verses. Um, so it's this super compact uh, short story that just gets at so much and is so rich. So I'm going to read it for us this morning to start and then I'm going to pray. Uh, but as I read it, I really want you to, I want to encourage you to listen, however you listen well, uh, whether that's following along in your bulletin uh, or just closing your eyes and listen, but I want you to really hear the story uh, and picture the story that's going on in this passage. So let me read, starting in verse 36 of Luke 7. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, I am uh, grateful that we have the story, that we have your word, um, that you've revealed what you're really like. Uh, you haven't left it to our imagination. Um, and that we have narratives, especially, that uh, we get a, a sense of who you really are uh, and the way that you relate to people like us. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we dive into this passage this morning, that you would show us more clearly who you are, uh, who we are, uh, our need for you, and uh, the grace that you shower us with. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would make us different people uh, because of what's in here. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the passage, you know, as you're following along, uh, it, it contrasts, right, the very religious, moral man with a notoriously sinful woman. Uh, because we're 2,000 years removed from the culture that this story occurred in, uh, there are parts of it that can be confusing or at least unclear and easy for us to miss. Uh, so we're going to look at it just a little more closely together uh, and see what's happening. So the passage begins with a Pharisee named Simon inviting Jesus over to his house for dinner and Jesus accepting his invitation. Uh, now the fact that Simon was a Pharisee it does tell us a good bit about him. Uh, the term Pharisee or Pharisaical, like, it has a negative context for us today. Uh, but in the first century, uh, they were fairly highly respected. Uh, the Pharisees had a reputation for strictly observing Jewish law. Uh, they were the moral role models of their day in a lot of ways. Uh, in today's terms, uh, Simon goes to church regularly. He teaches Sunday school. He sponsors several orphans overseas. And he serves in the nursery, right? Not just the cute little babies, but like the first graders who all have uh, separation anxiety uh, or the boys who are just too full of energy to actually accomplish much with. Uh, those are the classes he serves in, right? He's, he's working hard. Um, by the way, side note, we're always looking for more children's ministry volunteers. Uh, so with that ringing endorsement, if you're up for that, find Sarah John after the service. She'll be glad to hook you up. There she is in the back. Um, it is a great way to serve. Um, <laughs> see if I can come back after that. Uh, the point is, uh, Simon, uh, he would likely have been a fairly well-respected person in the town. He would have been admired. And now, meals in this culture were a big deal uh, and socially intimate. In fact, when the religious uh, leaders criticized Jesus for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, uh, they were saying he was one of them because he associated with them so closely uh, by this act of eating with them. So by inviting Jesus to his house for dinner, Simon is embracing Jesus. He's publicly associating himself with Jesus and to at least some degree declaring his support for him. So into this respectable dinner party uh, comes an unnamed woman. Her wandering in may seem a little odd to us. This is not breaking and entering. Uh, but it was common in their culture for the house to be open during a dinner party like this. So people could come in and observe the conversation. Uh, where it says, the passage says that she was a woman in the town who was a sinner. Uh, a more literal translation of that Greek phrase is a sinful woman of the city, uh, which is the first century euphemism for a prostitute. Um, she was a, a notorious sinner. And so when she comes into the dinner party, uh, sort of surprisingly, this is where she takes this huge risk 
Uh, She doesn't stand back against the wall and unobtrusively observe as she's socially expected to do. Uh, But as the dinner guests are lying uh, with their head toward the table and feet towards the wall, which was the way they did meals, uh, she works her way over behind Jesus, stands at his feet, and begins weeping. And she wets his feet with her tears. Then she bends down and begins wiping his feet with her hair and kissing them. And then she pours perfume on them. And this is where, again, it's, just, it's especially easy for us to miss some of the significance of what's going on here. In order to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, this woman would have had to let her hair down. Uh, not a big deal for us. Um, most of the women in here have their hair down. Um, it's normal for us. But in her culture, uh, this was an extremely intimate thing to do. Uh, in fact, the Jewish teachers of the day declared that if a woman let her hair down in public, that was grounds, legitimate grounds for her husband to divorce her. Uh, so it was very intimate for her to do this and socially inappropriate. Uh, you get a sense of how scandalous this was to everybody in the room by Simon's reaction to it in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. He's shocked that Jesus is letting her touch him at all, uh, much less allowing this kind of intimate outpouring of affection. And so in that statement, Simon, uh, he names what everyone in the room would have been thinking. Uh, Looking at this woman, all anyone would have seen was a prostitute. And all anyone would have thought was that she was morally inferior to them. Everyone except Jesus. He sees her differently. And Jesus sees Simon differently. And so Jesus tells the parable of the two men owing debts to the same moneylender as a way of inviting Simon to see himself and to see this woman the way Jesus sees them. Again, to kind of put the parable in modern terms, a denarii was roughly a day's wage. On average... Uh, There are 260 working days in a year, that's true for us and them, Uh, same year, Uh, or 22 working days in a month. So the first man in the story who owes 500 denarii owes the moneylender nearly two years' salary. Uh, And the other one who owes 50 denarii owes a little over two months' salary. Uh, So take a second, do the math with your own income, uh, and you get a bit of a sense of how the people in the room would have heard the parable, uh, their sense of the the significance of both debts. Uh, They're both large. Um, And just to make sure no one misses that point uh, of what he's saying, Jesus adds, neither of them were able to pay him back. So what, what is Jesus saying to Simon and to everyone in the room? He's saying, you are more like this woman than you are different from her. Even with all your religious observance and moral effort, you still owe a spiritual debt that you cannot repay. Just like her, your only hope is for the debt to be canceled. You are in just as much need of forgiveness as she is. Simon, you are acutely aware of her sinfulness, but you're utterly blind to your own. Now, before we're too hard on Simon in this, um, we need to admit that we're all like this a a good bit. Um, We're all reluctant to embrace our need for grace and forgiveness. 
we're all prone to see ourselves as better than we actually are. Uh, to m- prove that point, um, I- I'll commend a book to you. I think this is in, in your bulletin there. Uh, it's one of the most uh, thought-provoking and convicting books I've read in the past few years. Uh, it's called I Told Me So, Self-Deception and the Christian Life by Greg Tenelshoff. I just sound smart saying that name. Uh, Tenelshoff begins his book saying this, I'm a college professor. I have been for almost a decade. I work reasonably hard at my job, and I think I do it fairly well. In fact, in my honest and solitary moments, when there's no occasion for false humility, I'd say I'm a better-than-average teacher. I'm in good company. A recent study revealed that 94% of the people who do what I do think they're they're doing a better-than-average job. And it's not just college professors. A survey of one million high school seniors found that 70% thought they were above average in leadership ability, and only 2% thought that they were below average. In terms of ability to get along with others, all students thought they were above average. 60% thought they were in the top 10%, and 25% thought they were in the top 1%. Clearly, a lot of people are wrong about how they stack up in comparison with their peers. Uh, Tenelshoff goes on to unpack the different ways that we consciously and unconsciously are always at work seeing ourselves in a a comparatively favorable light. Uh, We selectively perceive data about ourselves. We're adept at identifying extenuating circumstances that explain our failures. Uh, We value areas where we excel and we diminish areas that we're weak at. We regularly frame things in a way that's advantageous to our opinion of ourselves. So we'll do a little thought experiment here, right? Uh, Think about when you arrived this morning for the 9 o'clock service, right? Did you arrive before 9 or after 9? You don't have to raise hands, don't have to say anything, but have it in your mind. Uh, Now, if you're a before-the-start-of-service person, uh, how do you think about other before people? Um, You probably think of them as punctual, considerate, responsible people who value worship. And you think of after the start of service people as inconsiderate people who can't get it together and don't value worship. Right? Okay? But if you're an after the service starts type of person, which probably 90% of South End is, uh, punctuality is not our spiritual gift as a church community, uh, you likely view after people as laid-back, relational, grace-oriented people, like yourself, and before people as legalistic, uptight rule followers. Uh, now, it's really entertaining um, to, to that Sunday morning conversation uh, when it occurs, uh, when before people marry after people. Uh, highly entertaining conversation that occurs then when you're trying to get out the door together. Uh, At least it's highly entertaining when I'm doing marriage counseling, not so much when Jen and I are trying to leave for church. Um, Now that's, uh, you know, fairly light, humorous illustration, unless you're sitting next to your spouse and in the middle of that fight right now. Um, But I do want to give you a picture of kind of a more uh, personal, more recent, more significant illustration of how we do this. Uh, This week, in a group of people, uh, I really hurt a friend's feelings with how I spoke to her. Now, uh, at 
53 years old. It takes sort of a neurotic degree of denial to believe I'm good at everything. Uh, so my, like most people, my self-image management uh, relies on being good at a few things. Uh, it makes it easier to admit that I'm not good at everything. For me, one of those things that I rely on is being a gentle person and a safe person. Uh, lots of story I could go into that explains why those are the things I look to uh, for my internal PR manager. Um, so when I, when I failed and failed publicly at being both safe and gentle with this friend, uh, I immediately, without any conscious effort, went into self-image scramble mode. Uh, I tried to minimize it by telling myself that what I said wasn't that harsh. Uh, perhaps she was just feeling particularly sensitive that morning. Uh, I tried to rationalize it away by telling myself I was tired and carrying a lot, so I wasn't at my best. Uh, and I even tried to justify it by saying she had hurt my feelings earlier. Uh, all of that was just this internal dialogue um, that I didn't even tr tr have to try to have. It just happened. Uh, and it took a long time uh, to embrace the fact that I, I really had just hurt her, uh, and I'd incurred a relational debt, uh, and I needed to simply ask her forgiveness. That took me a long, embarrassingly long time to get to, uh, just admitting that and asking her. Uh, it, it's simple. Asking forgiveness for somebody, admitting our need for grace is simple, but it's not easy. Now, everything in me works so hard to avoid admitting and really feeling my need for grace and forgiveness. Uh, that's the point of Jesus' parable. The real difference between Simon, the religious leader, morally upright, uh, and the former prostitute at Jesus' feet isn't the degree of their sinfulness. It's their awareness of their sinfulness and their need of grace. She, the woman, had embraced her need of grace while Simon is blind or in denial about his need. Dying to that image of ourselves as above average and deserving, mortally entitled to God's love and blessing, admitting that we have a moral debt that we cannot ever pay off, and finally abandoning all attempts at self-righteousness. Uh, embracing our need for God to relate to us only out of sheer grace. Uh, that is the beginning of a real life with God, real relationship with him. If you're here visiting this morning and thinking that you're the exception, uh, that this church is made up of good moral people who have their lives together, uh, I want to assure you that nothing could be farther from the truth, um, partially because I know myself, I know the other pastors, uh, my role at Hope, uh, a lot of people here confide in me the things they struggle with. Um, and even more so, uh, I, I can say it with objective certainty, because every single member who joins the church stands up here and takes two vows when they join. Uh, the first is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And then the next one is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? 
every time we have a joining, I kind of want to say, you do realize what you're about to say in front of a room full of people, right? Uh, What you're actually admitting. Uh, You stand up here and do it, and we spend the rest of our lives trying to (laughs) act like it's not true. Um, But there is no other beginning point to the Christian life. But it's not easy. Uh, I love the way Tim Keller puts it in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Keller says it this way, getting at the difficulty of it and the necessity. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him. Embracing our need of grace is the only starting point for life with God. But it's not just the starting point. In the early 1500s, Catholic monk Martin Luther, um, this, is, this is world history. Somehow I, I missed it in high school. I probably missed a lot in high school, though, uh, and didn't really understand the history of the Reformation until I was in seminary. Uh, so you're in good company if this is new information to you. Uh, but early 1500s, Catholic monk Martin Luther, he began the Protestant Reformation by posting to a church door 95 theses statements that he believed the church needed to wrestle with. And his very first one was when our Lord, Jesus, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Friends, following Jesus is a wash, rinse, repeat cycle uh, of seeing our sin and coming back to him for grace and forgiveness over and over and over again. Hopefully that's good news and helps you rest uh, rather than feeling uh, depressing. (laughs) And it, it helps for it to be good news when you look at what happens as a result. Um, when we're finally able to reluctantly embrace our need of grace. Rather than the life of low self-esteem and groveling we might anticipate, uh, it perhaps surprisingly leads to a deep sense of joy and gratitude um, as we reflect, as we feel the grace that is offered to us. Look back at the passage. Um, Where Simon sees the woman's actions towards Jesus only through the lens of impropriety, Jesus sees them as her expression of gratitude and joy. In verse 43, Simon concedes the obvious meaning of the parable. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled will love the moneylender more. And then, and this is one of my favorite parts in the passage where it takes just this beautiful turn. This is where I wish it was like a a film, right? I'd love to direct the film playing this out. Because in this very tender way, Jesus dignifies the woman and he invites Simon to see her in light of that statement. Again, verse 44, Jesus turned toward the woman. He's looking at her, and he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He goes on to just elevate all that she's done and honor her for it. Jesus emphasizes the difference and how Simon and the woman have treated him. And he commends this woman to Simon. He says, do you see the way she loves me? That's how you should be treating me. You haven't even extended the common courtesies of the day. A place to wash my feet, a 
kiss on the cheek, a drop of oil on my head. But she has lavished me with excess, washing my feet with her tears, kissing them, anointing them with expensive perfume. And the reason is she's more grateful than you, Simon. That's the difference between the two of you. She rightly sees the debt of her sin and the grace that she has received. And it's made her deeply grateful. The woman knows she's a sinner. Everyone in the town knew she was a sinner. She knows she doesn't deserve to be in Jesus' presence. She hasn't earned his affection, but she's received it anyway, and she is overwhelmed by it. There's such stark contrast between her faith in Jesus' grace and mercy and Simon's faith in his moral and religious observance. This woman was stunned by Jesus' grace, and she was transformed by it. Simon's faith resulted in a bland life of respectability, self-righteous arrogance, and pressure to maintain it. Her faith produces joy, passion, freedom, and reckless abandon. Jesus may have admired Jesus, but there was no passion, no weeping, no letting down of the hair, no expression of affection. Um, one more quote to help. I love other, the way other people capture some of this. Uh, commenting on this passage, Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous English preacher in the 18, early 1800s, uh, he says this about Simon, commenting on this passage, and a, commenting on us. It is always like that. Your converted Pharisees have to be made to feel like this woman before they will render love like hers. And if Simon is ever made to feel that his sin, in a certain light, is as great as the sin of this fallen woman, then he will love as much as she does. But not until then. It is the only way to experience that kind of deep gratitude. One final point uh, about this woman's expression of her love for Jesus. Uh, Her pouring of perfume on Jesus' feet, uh, it reveals the depth of her gratitude that's easy for us to miss. Uh, This alabaster jar of perfume that she's brought with her uh, would have been the type that was worn on a string around a woman's neck. Uh, These perfume bottles were large at the bottom with a thin neck at the top uh, so that the aroma could escape, but the liquid could not. Um, In a culture without deodorant, uh, it would have been a pleasant variation to the normal odors when you were interacting with people. Uh, As such... Well, think middle school boy locker room, and like you have a sense of the normal of their day, right? Um, And so because of that, this bottle of perfume, uh, it had been critical to her life as a prostitute. Um, It was a part of her trade, part of her livelihood, part of what she depended on and probably had for a long time. Because of the way the bottle was made, um, very thin at the top where the liquid couldn't come out, Um, she would have had to break it in order to pour it out on Jesus' feet. As you can imagine, these perfume bottles were very expensive, and it would not have been easy for her to part with this. This was a remarkably generous expression of gratitude, both in its objective value and likely in her subjective attachment to it. I said at the beginning that the the passage captures the heart of the gospel and the journey of the Christian life. 
Uh, you see the heart of the gospel uh, in the contrast between Simon and the woman, right? It's, it's pretty clear there, the difference between self-righteous religious effort uh, and grace-dependent righteousness that comes from faith in Christ and what he's done. And we see the journey of the Christian life and how this woman uh, embraces grace and forgiveness, how that leads to a deep sense of gratitude, and then how that gratitude is expressed through generous living. Uh, that, that's what the gospel should do to us. Uh, it's where the gospel and our experience of grace should take us. Now, it's tricky uh, as a pastor to talk about generosity. Um, I worry it makes me super uncomfortable. I worry about it coming across as self-serving and manipulative, um, all of those things. And I really value being a safe person, remember? So it's like I feel all that. Uh, and yet, I can't deny, uh, that's what I see in my own heart. Um, my sense of generosity in any moment, the feeling of generosity, is tied to my experience of grace in the moment. How connected am I to what I've received? So, I, I just want to be clear, right? If you're leaving here feeling pressure to be more generous, uh, then you've really missed the point of the passage, the sermon, our, our whole generosity series. Uh, trying hard to be generous is Simon's religious approach, approach to faith in life. Uh, you can't make yourself have a generous heart. Uh, to become a truly generous person, uh, you have to be like a cucumber. Uh, this is my best Ted Lasso impression, be like a goldfish. Um, but I'm, be like a cucumber. Uh, the only way a cucumber becomes a pickle is soaking in vinegar. Uh, there's no other way. You can't speed up the process. Uh, and it's the same with our own hearts. The only way to become a truly generous person is to soak in the grace that we've received. It's the only thing that will change us, to help us let go and not hold on to tightly to everything we have, uh, whether it's money, time, relationships, all of that. Uh, being an introvert, uh, being generous with my time is the place I feel it. That's the hardest uh, for me to let go of. Um, all of them are a little hard, but time... Uh, that's, that's definitely the hardest. So uh, I want to end with a, a little video, shorter than last week. Uh, but as we're doing this generosity series, we've asked several people to share uh, their stories, uh, how their time at Hope has helped them experience grace and live out of grace. Uh, so I'm excited for you, you all to hear um, real quickly from one of our OP members as she shares about how God has used Hope in her journey of faith. It's a great picture of grace leading to gratitude and that leading to her being really generous with her story. Um, as you can imagine, it's super vulnerable to let somebody record you talking about your story and have it be shown to people. So uh, we'll end with this as the, the last illustration um, of the sermon, and then we'll continue worship. <laughs> 